0: and verse 27, and have that in front of you as we look at it together this morning. Now, whether you're into the monarchy or not, you can't escape the fact that this has been and is a fairly historic weekend. The last coronation, that of Elizabeth II, was 70 years ago back on the 2nd of June, 1953. Now, is there anyone here who remembers that, seeing it with their own eyes? Yes? Maybe you're afraid to admit it. Very good. Well, for some, it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. Um, For others, you may see more than one coronation in your lifetime. In light of the significance of this weekend, I've decided uh, to take a break from our series in Galatians, really to leverage this historic moment to help us appreciate more fully the far more significant reign of our true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the strands that holds together the Gospel of Matthew is a theme of the kingship of Jesus Christ. It actually bookends the gospel. It's like a golden thread that pulls together the whole narrative of the 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel. Chapter one gives us the royal lineage of Jesus Christ, the son of David, to show that he is the long-anticipated messianic king who was coming to have an eternal reign over God's people. Then you go right to the end of the book, and at the end we have this royal ruler, Jesus, stating that he has all authority and that his subjects, his disciples, his people are to go out to all the nations and to call them to recognize and give allegiance to his rule and reign. And this kingship theme through the Gospel of Matthew reaches a climax in what we could call the king's ironic coronation ceremony. That coronation ceremony is seen in the suffering and death of Jesus as recorded in the 27th chapter that we're looking at this morning. It seems that Matthew, the gospel writer, clearly wants us to See Jesus' suffering and crucifixion as a kind of ironic royal coronation ceremony. Now, yesterday we saw a number of elements that made up the coronation of King Charles. For those who were looking on, you'll know what I mean, but you don't have to have seen the coronation yesterday for this message to make sense. But there were a number of elements that made up the coronation of King Charles, but there were four main parts to the ceremony. First, the recognition of the new king and presentation of the royal regalia, including the orb and the crown and the scepter. Second, then there was the procession from that coronation chair to the actual throne, the enthronement and the procession. Third, there was then the king's oath and the king's prayer. And fourthly and finally, there was the homage of the people. And what I want to do this morning is walk down through the text of Matthew chapter 27 and demonstrate how each of these elements of coronation were present in Jesus' ironic coronation ceremony. And as we work down through this, it's my hope that the powerful irony and the contrast of Christ's coronation to the events of yesterday will have its intended effect on us. For let's remember, the account of the crucifixion of Christ Is not just presented by the gospel writers to give an historic, accurate record of what happened. It is there to do that, yes, certainly, but it's there to do a lot more. The record of the death of Jesus is crafted very intentionally, it is recounted very intentionally. And is designed to stir a response in us. A deep response. What Matthew is doing in Matthew 27. Is he is giving us a vision of the glory of Christ the King. A vision of Christ the King. That is supposed to humble us. And to make our hearts burn with affection. For our incomparable King. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at this together, it's been my prayer this morning, and I want you even to be praying inwardly now the following Lord, help me to see Jesus and to be moved again by what I see. Lord, we want to see Jesus. Let's pray that God would light a flame under our affections again today that would revive our weary hearts. So working down through these four main elements of a typical coronation ceremony. First, we see the recognition of the king and the presentation of the royal regalia. That's what we get here in verses 27 to 31 of the narrative. Yesterday, there was a moment when King Charles was officially recognized as the king, received as the king, and presented with the royal regalia, the emblems of his rule. The main emblems that he was presented with, among other things, are the robe that he was draped in, the crown that was set upon his head, and the scepter that symbolized his authority to reign. And if you look carefully, you will see how all of these emblems are present in verses 27 to 31. In verse 27, we read that the soldiers took Jesus from the place of his horrible public scourging to the inside of the palace where they decided to have a bit of fun with him. We read that they gathered the whole battalion together. You could imagine one of the Uh, soldiers just shouting, here lads, we've got the king of the Jews on our hands here. Let's have a bit of fun. In Psalm 22, 16, a psalm that is all about the king's death. In verse 16, we read the king saying, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers have encircled me. You can imagine Jesus surrounded, alone, totally outnumbered, terribly exhausted from the sleepless night and the flogging. And in verses 28 and 29, we're told that the soldiers decide to play a kind of dress-up game with him. They drape him in a scarlet robe. They put a reed in his right hand as a mock scepter, and they twist together a crown of thorns and jam it down on his head. When the crown was set on King Charles's head yesterday, there was this moment of fanfare, a rousing moment of recognition of the newly crowned king. Well, Jesus' recognition comes in the form of the soldiers sarcastically kneeling before him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Heal the king. In verse 30, we're told that they snatched the reed, the scepter, out of his hand and started to hit him with it as they mocked him. See the irony in this. They mocked the one whose majesty, if it were truly unveiled to them, would have reduced them to quivering, quaking messes. They would have been stricken with fear in the presence of the holy. In their mouths, Hail, King of the Jews! was mockery. But at this stage in the Gospel of Matthew, if you've traced the kingship theme right through... The reader knows the irony of that moment. This is the king of the Jews. They saw no majesty in King Jesus. But if we have eyes to see it, there is majesty here. For though they don't know it, those soldiers were fulfilling everything that Jesus had said would happen to him when his time for suffering would come. He laid out his royal manifesto earlier in the gospel. Back in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and there I will be handed over to the Gentiles. He said they would flog him, mock him, spit on him, and kill him. And so think about this. Even... In the hour of his deepest humiliation, Jesus was reigning as king. He reigned in that lowly suffering. He was fulfilling his royal vocation, drinking the cup of suffering that he had resolved to drink so that his subjects, his people, Would never have to drink it. He took the mocking for us. And we have to ask ourselves the question does this not fill our hearts with affection for this king? Well, after the recognition of the king and the presentation of the royal regalia, we saw this moment the procession from the coronation chair to the actual moment of enthronement. And we see this now in our passage in verses 32 to 44. After Charles' crowning and recognition, he moved to his seat of authority. And in verse 32, Jesus now, after the mocking and the presentation of his royal regalia, he makes his way to his own seat of authority. But it's not a throne. It's a cross. As Jesus makes his way out to the hill called Golgotha, outside the city walls, we learn that he's too weak to carry his cross. So we're told there that the Roman soldiers force a passerby named Simon of Cyrene to carry it. Think of Penny Mordaunt yesterday and her role as the, the sword bearer walking in front of the king. Well, here we had a cross bearer walking before the king. In verse 34, we're told that before his enthronement on the cross, Jesus is offered a kind of sedative, a bitter wine, which he refuses. In verse 35, then, we're told of Jesus' crucifixion really just in passing. Matthew writes, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. See, Matthew wants to keep his main purpose in view. He wants us to see again that this is the crowning, the coronation, the enthronement of God's King. He's alluding there in that little comment they divided his garments among them by casting lots to Psalm 22 a psalm on the suffering, as we said already, of the anticipated Messiah. We read there in Psalm 22 verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew wants us to see this is being fulfilled in Jesus as the soldiers do the same to him. Another custom of This enthronement crucifixion was to mount a placard over the cross. When a criminal was crucified under Roman law, there was a placard set over the top of the cross that stated the crime the person was crucified for. In verse 37, we read, The charge against him read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And again, we are to feel extreme irony here. It's very easy to miss the fact that this was the charge against him. This was his crime. It doesn't make sense. In a sense, Pilate wanted to annoy the Jews, it seems, through putting this up in the way that he put it up. But what he ends up doing is actually putting the royal coronation announcement in a place where everyone could see it. Matthew's telling us in this record, Behold the throne that the world has put God's king on. See the king of the Jews. Pilate, in putting that sign in place, spoke better than he knew. The coronation ceremony closes For Jesus, the way it opened at this point, with mockery. In verses 39 and following, we read, those who passed by the crucified, enthroned king derided him, wagging their heads. Yesterday, there was a moment where the crowd shouted in acclamation, long live the king, hail the king, paid homage to the king. Well, in this moment, Here's what the crowd said to Jesus. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him saying, he saved others and he can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. But Matthew wants us again to feel the irony of this. He wants us to see at this point that it is because Jesus is the true King of Israel, that he must stay on the cross. That's what the royal son came to do. This is the climax of the son's vocation. This moment, the cross, this was his throne, the seat of his authority, because through his death on the cross, he would conquer death, sin, hell, and everything that would truly ruin his people. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you behold the love of the Father? in his giving of his royal son over for us so that we could be saved. John writes in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, remember, had been enthroned in glory before his incarnation, but he stepped down from the throne of glory to the throne of the cross to save us. And here's the thing. He reigned on the cross. He reigned through his suffering. He reigned on the cross. He reigned through his death because he was fulfilling his royal vocation, of loving his people and giving himself for them. He is the incomparable king. Not for one moment did he cease to reign. Not one moment did he cease to reign as king, even through his suffering and death. In fact, that was his crowning glory. The father had sent him to die and he willingly came to lay down his life. He's an incomparable king. Does this not stir your heart with affection for him? Well, after the recognition and presentation of regalia, after the procession, to the throne and the enthronement of his crucifixion. Then we come to consider, thirdly, the king's oath and prayer. This is verses 45 to 53. Really, before any of the proceedings began yesterday, the king was asked, King Charles, to take the coronation oath. When asked, are you willing to take the oath? The king responded, I am willing. And then he was asked in the oath, Will you uphold law and justice in mercy in all of your judgments? And the king answered, King Charles, I will. Now before Jesus ever arrived at the cross, in Gethsemane, our king declared his own oath. In Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Jesus solemnly declared his willingness to uphold justice and mercy in all of his judgments. He declared this oath when he said, shaking and sweating in prayer before the Father, not my will, but yours be done. That was Jesus saying, I am willing. He said in that statement, I am willing to uphold justice and mercy in the judgment I will go through on the cross. And now in verses 45 to 53 of Matthew 27, we see him fulfilling his oath. At the most sacred moment in the coronation ceremony yesterday, the anointing of the king the uh, attendants brought in these um, anointing screens and they set them up so that this moment uh, would be shielded behind the screens to respect the solemnity of the moment. In behind those screens, the king was anointed and those presiding over the service, they prayed for him. There was something about the sacredness and solemnity of that moment that meant it was fitting for it to be shrouded from the onlookers. Well, in verse 45 here in our text, we read that the son Jesus was shrouded in darkness at this, the most sacred moment of his own coronation we read that darkness fell over the whole land from the sixth hour, noon, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. That darkness portrayed the full force of the judgment of a holy God falling on our king. Our king bore the penalty for our sins alone. No one else could do it. Here we behold our king alone, upholding what he promised to uphold, judgment and mercy in judgment. This was our king taking our cup of wrath and drinking it down to the deepest parts of his being, swallowing wrath and condemnation up so that we would never have to experience it. This is Jesus being made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And at the lowest point of his poverty we hear the king's prayer. Verse 46. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only place... In all the Gospels where Jesus prays without addressing God as Father. Jesus takes again words from Psalm 22 on his lips to express the depths of his forsakenness as the sin bearer under the judgment of God. And I remember when we were covering this in Mark's Gospel, we recognized that there's great mystery here. For this moment, this cry of dereliction, this cry of forsakenness, it it can't mean that the eternal communion between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was fully broken, for God cannot cease to be triune. Jesus still says, my God. But though it can't fully mean this, we must uphold the realness of the forsakenness. Jesus, the God-man, didn't just feel forsaken. He was, in a real way, forsaken. Rejected by Israel. Rejected by Pilate. Because of political expediency. Abandoned by every one of his disciples. Every time we've sinned, we've abandoned him as well. And now Jesus experienced on the cross some kind of real distancing, distancing from God. Demonstrated in the less intimate address my God, as opposed to Father. And we are to behold in this very solemn moment, even through the shrouding of darkness, our King alone loving us to the very end. This is one of the central mysteries and glories of the death of Christ. This moment must not be trivialized, but it must be wrestled with. It must be received by faith, even if we can't fully understand it. But misunderstood by the onlookers who thought he was calling on Elijah, they totally missed what was happening. What about you? Have you really seen the depths of the poverty that Christ, your king, passed through to save you? Well, in verse 50, we read that after this experience, the king cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John tells us in his gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, what this cry was. It was that cry, finished! Jesus had absorbed the sin and the wrath of God, and he bore it to the point where it satisfied the Father. God satisfied God on the throne of the cross. God satisfied God. God alone could do that. And we are to step back for a moment in this very holy, sacred, Seen, and we are to see, behold, what our king has done for us. There's beauty in this coronation, even in the irony. See him reigning, even in that moment of forsakenness. Well, after this oath and prayer of the king, we come finally to the homage of royal blood and the homage of the people. That was the last part in the coronation ceremony yesterday, and really it's the last part in the coronation of King Jesus, verses 51 to 56. After the coronation of King Charles and enthronement yesterday, one of the first responses to that event was the paying homage to the king. The first to pay homage had to be a member of the royal family. It was quite a moving scene as uh, Prince William, or what do you call him now? The Duke of Edinburgh, thank you for getting that. (laughs) Prince of Wales, yes, thank you. The Prince of Wales, this lovely moment where he kissed his father on the cheek, he kissed the king. Makes me think of the words of Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry blessed are those who trust in him but there was an act of paying homage to the king the first to pay homage had to be a member of the royal family well, in verse 51 we read that upon jesus cry finished the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom That curtain, while it stood in the temple, symbolized the separation between God and man because of sin. That curtain symbolized a barrier of sin that kept sinners from the presence of a good and holy God. Well, when Jesus cried, finished, that curtain was torn From top to bottom, it was God the Father, in a sense, if you will, paying homage to the work of his Son, saying, yes, I recognize the accomplishments of my Son, the King. He has opened the way to the Holy of Holies. He has opened the way into my presence. I recognize the work of the Son. But then, in verse 54 and following, Matthew tells us that the centurion and those with him who were looking on as Jesus died, they were filled with awe, and they paid homage in these words, truly, this was or is the Son of God. They saw it. The cross was revelatory. The cross is revelatory. In fact, you can only understand the true royal vocation of Jesus when you see his death. They paid homage to the Son of God, God's King, enthroned on a cross, righteous, having salvation, was He, humble unto the end. The cross and the death of Jesus Christ is the crowning glory of the Son. Why? Because in this act of His death, He fulfilled His oath. He upheld the justice of a holy God And he opened a fountain of mercy for God's people to be cleansed under. And in that moment of revelation, when that Gentile centurion saw it, again, we're to feel this irony on his lips. One of the few in the gospel to actually really get it. Whatever he knew, he probably spoke better than he knew. But when he said, this is the Son of God, That was the act of homage to the enthroned king. Our king fulfilled his royal vocation. He was a king who loved us and demonstrated truly that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. I don't know if you remember that poignant moment at the beginning of the coronation for those who saw it yesterday a young boy you know uh, expressed what this was all about you know inviting the king to come and be king and the king came and said I came I come not to be served but to serve to follow the example of Christ Jesus was robed in shame so that we could be robed in righteousness and royalty Jesus was crowned with thorns so that we could receive a crown of life. Jesus was enthroned on a cross so that we could be raised up to be enthroned with him forever. Matthew is saying, behold the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To take the words of the Apostle Paul, though he was rich in glory, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might be made rich. But we know at this point that this was not the end of the coronation ceremony of Jesus, but really only the beginning. There was a moment at the beginning of the coronation ceremony yesterday when Camilla and Charles were entering Westminster Abbey, when a choir sang the very powerful vivat rex, which is Latin for Long Live the King. And I was really moved by this. As the choir at that moment, as the king entered, all accompaniment, musical accompaniment stopped, and they Declared loudly three times, "Vivat, vivat, vivat," which means "May he live, may he live, may he live." "Vivat Rex," may the king live. And what struck me, how on the third day, in a sense the Father, in the resurrection of the Son, declared those words. "Viva, Long live the King! Rise! And the Son, his crowning ceremony, comes to a whole new level. Long Live the King. And from that moment, after appearing to many, he was then ascended and he rose up and was enthroned in glory and distributed the coronation gifts, namely, the best gift of all, the Holy Spirit. He showered the spirit upon his church, empowering her for mission. And he calls his church to go in his name and under his royal authority to the nations to call them all to bow the knee and to recognize his royal supremacy over all. Because he is not just this king, King Jesus, not just the king of England, or the king of the commonwealth he's a king of glory, the king of heaven, the king of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, incomparable. And feel the irony in the pomp and pageantry of yesterday compared to the coronation ceremony of our king. he promised that he would come back again. And that until that time, his subjects, his people, the people of the kingdom, were to live with hope, to live the light of a kingdom in the world, to be living the life that proclaims that our king reigns. He is Lord of all. And everyone must bow the knee and confess with their tongue that he is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. But as he returns whether they have acknowledged it or not when he returns in his own glory as king king of kings everyone will see his glory And it won't be that they are forced to bow down. Everyone will see and they will fall and say, King of kings, Lord of lords, majesty. But it will only be those who submitted to his kingship in life, in this life, who will be saved on that day and will be welcomed into the kingdom forever. Those who in this life rejected, who rejected the king, like the protesters outside yesterday who said, not my king. Those people, we are told by Jesus himself, they will face eternity in hell because of the seriousness of their infinite offense of rejecting that majestic king when he had done all of that. They will be rejected forever. And so now we are called to say, yes, my king. To turn from our sin of rejecting him and to receive him and to pay homage to him and to commit our Lives to him so there is the king's ironic coronation presented by Matthew I hope you feel the irony when you contrast it to what happened yesterday but let's just close by asking ourselves a few questions what's your response to this king Have you bowed the knee and received him as your king? If you have, have you got into some kind of mindset where you kind of from a distance trust him? Or do you daily treasure him? Do you treasure the king? Do you appreciate the royal son? Does your life demonstrate his worth? Does your life, your time, your thoughts of him, does your life, your mindset, the way you use your money, the way you use your time, what you watch on TV, everything you do, does your life demonstrate his worth? Does, would someone looking on at your life say, they treasured the king? Maybe this morning, once again, you just need to bow again before our great king and say, Lord, I receive you again as my king. Truly, you're the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Help me in my weakness to recognize you as such. Finally, have you given yourself to the work of proclaiming his reign under his authority? in evangelism and missions. That's what the king said we're to do until he comes back. Go into all the world, make disciples, and I'll be with you always. Have you given yourself to the mission of the church that the royal son has entrusted to the church? He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us so we don't have an excuse. Have you given yourself, really given yourself to the mission that our King has entrusted to us? Whether that means local evangelism, taking a hope-explored card and taking it seriously and saying, Lord, please make it. In my weakness, in my fear, my, my fear, the way I feel so embarrassed, just change me so that I'll give it to someone and say, come to this. That could be a small way that you say, yeah, I want to respond and be part of this incredible mission of calling the nations to bow to this glorious king. So what's your response to this king? Is it a fitting response of worthiness? Well, we know that by ourselves, none of us are worthy. And so we remember again what he went through for us to save us from all the ways we've fallen short of his glory so that we could be counted righteous and saved. Let's pray together as we move to the Lord's Supper. Father, there are some powerful contrasts and ironies in Matthew's portrayal of the death of Jesus. All along, those words, Hail the King, this is the King of the Jews. Though those words were spoken sarcastically and in in mockery, we can't help but see this royal theme that just dominates the, the death of Jesus. This is the King being crucified to fulfill his royal vocation to give salvation. And Lord, as we respond now and sing again of the King loving us and giving his all for us, and as we respond in the King's banquet, the Lord's Supper, the taste of the bread and the drink of the wine, remembering the body broken and the blood poured out, Lord, this is once again a way we respond to the royal vocation of our King. We gather at his banquet, we eat and we drink with thanksgiving in our hearts. And so as we respond now, may our response be fitting. And may our hearts be right before you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, prepare our hearts to go straight into our time around the Lord's table. We're going to sing the first two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, instituted a meal of remembrance for his people so that we could remember his death and everything he accomplished through it. That meal is a simple act where we break bread, we eat it, we take a cup and we drink it. This is us proclaiming together, yes, he is my king. I am a Christian, I know and love the Lord. And so if you're here with us this morning and you want to share in this meal of remembrance, you're very welcome to do so. If you know and love the Lord as your Lord and Savior and you're in good standing with your local church, then share with us in this wonderful time of remembrance. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you uh, are not in good standing with your local church, we'd ask you to refrain from taking the bread and the wine and just take this as an opportunity to reflect on what's holding you back from being right with the Lord. If you came in this morning and you walked past the table where the bread and the wine are sitting and you're wanting to share in communion, then take this moment during the first two verses. Just nip back, get the elements that you need and then find your place again so that we're ready right after we sing to just break the bread and drink the cup together. But for now, as we prepare our hearts, let's stand together and sing these very powerful words when I survey the wondrous cross. Thank